0: From the 62nd chapter of Isaiah come these words from the prophet. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land, married for the Lord, delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And from 1 Corinthians, in the 12th chapter these lessons to the new church in Corinth. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to the other the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, working of miracles to another prophecy, to another discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of the tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. And then our primary text today We move out of Luke and to John for this one Sunday. And it is the second chapter of John, the first sign that Jesus does. That is the first miracle that Jesus does in Cana. And the story goes like this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jews' rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out. and Take it to the chief steward. So they took it. And when the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many here have been surprised to hear me quote my old worship professor, who had been known to say on many an occasion, a pastor would much rather perform a funeral than a wedding. In fact, that particular worship professor said a pastor would much rather do several funerals than one wedding. And the reason for that, as I tell people, is when you're performing a funeral, almost everybody is always happy to see the the pastor coming. When you're performing a wedding, almost nobody wants to see the pastor. Because in this day and age, what the pastor becomes is the director of the temperance union, the language police, The Keeper of Manners and Etiquette. The Encourager of Volunteer Custodians. And, all in all, the Resident Killjoy. As my dear nephew in his wedding invitation so profoundly said. Weddings today have become a time we gather for fun, we get married, and then we party. I'm really proud of our session. We have just written a new, and our Worship and Music Commission, we've just written a new wedding policy for the church, and the one thing they were adamant on in the writing of this policy was they wanted to say, because people want to come and rent this place a lot, they wanted to say to the world that a wedding is designed to be a sacred occasion. That people who come in here should not just be coming in here to bide time before their drunk fest at the rehearsal or at the reception in Ogilby. And that feels right to me. You know, the one thing that I tell everybody that whose weddings I do perform is I want you to call me in seven weeks. And they look at me funny. Why seven weeks? Because in almost twenty-five years of doing this actually, today is my twenty second ordination anniversary. Today is my twenty second (laughs) ordination anniversary. But in all the time I've been doing this, I've only had two weddings that have ever failed. And both of them failed in seven weeks, and both of them failed because either the groom ran off with a member of the wedding party. So when I marry people, I always tell, tell them, call me in seven weeks. If you make it to seven weeks, we know you're good. Last forever. And I've actually had a few people actually do that. It's kind of fun, but... Um, we have to change our mindset about weddings if we're going to think about the second chapter of John because we have this understanding that now, particularly in this day and age, you know, everybody lives together before they get married, which I'm not advocating. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but this is what happens in our world. They all live together. Then they get together. They have this big day, and it becomes a big party, and then... They take like a two-week honeymoon to the most expensive place they can choose, and they spend the rest of their marriage paying that off. This is not the way things worked in Jesus' day. The notion of, you know, you don't, you don't um, see your bride before the night before. No, it was like a month before they didn't see their brides and they separated back to their own homes, and then they came together for a wedding, which was about a two-hour ceremony. And then they didn't vacation. They didn't go anywhere. Instead, they spent a week, a week in a reception where they just celebrated the fact that the bride and groom had gotten together and that God had blessed this union which of course was designed to have children and bring life into the world. And so this was the beginning of a celebration of life for them. Now enter here Jesus. Jesus, who is invited to this wedding along with his disciples, so we can fairly surmised that these people were friends of the family of Jesus. And Mary realizes early on, Mary, who is not ever named, by the way, in the Gospel of John, Mary notices early on that the wine is running thin. In fact, the text tells us it's only the third day that they've been together, and they have... Three more days or three and a half more days to go. It's not much of a party if the food and the drink runs out halfway through. And see, we have to put our minds also in in the mindset of Middle Eastern culture, which says to people, hospitality is the number one obligation we have. The bridegroom's father, no, the groom's parents, had the obligation to be hospitable to all the guests they had, been, they had invited. And running out of food and drink would have been the worst of the sins against this. Mary was trying to cover for her friends. And she says to her son, son, deal with this. You can do something now. In our language, again, Jesus' answer to her seems harsh because he says, "Woman, what concern of you is it to you?" It sounds like to us that he's saying to her, "Mind your own beeswax, mom." Jeez, mom, you're always messing in other people's business. No, in the, ling- in the language that he's speaking, in Aramaic that he talks to his mother, what he's really saying is, "Ma'am, I- I'm not sure that we need to bother with this. It's not our obligation." By the way, this is why this that statement and that attitude is why some people think this was Jesus' wedding because the obligation, the onus for hospitality was on the family of the one getting married. And so if you ever hear any talk about, well, maybe Jesus was married because of the wedding at Cana, that's where it comes from. There is no biblical evidence that Jesus was married. It's all speculation, but this is the place where it comes from. Okay, so prompted by his mother, Jesus then turns this water into wine. Why? Well, he he meets the immediate need of making sure that the family who is responsible for the wedding meets their obligation of hospitality. But he also points us to God. Remember that we're in the season of epiphany when Jesus is manifesting God to us. Jesus is showing us who God is by the way he's acting. And Jesus shows us a God who loves to hear people laughing and celebrating and having a good time. Church, we must not forget the revelation of this joy. The sign at Cana tells us that Jesus served a God who puts joy into life who thinks it's worth a miracle to keep the party going as we celebrate people. Listen, it is very clear from the Old Testament prophets that God wants us to be holy. But the Old Testament prophets also say, hey, you know, your religion doesn't mean much if you're not living right. And one of the things that Jesus shows us is that we don't just live holy lives. We also live happy ones. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus of Nazareth celebrated people, people getting married, people being healed from disease and deformity, people people enjoying meals together, Anytime my mom watches the Big Bang Theory, she says, why are they always eating? Every time you look at these people, they're always eating. Well, they're physicists. We don't want to see them working. That was funny, Debbie. Come on, you got to admit. (laughs) They eat together because that's where we hear the gist of who they are. That's when the best conversations happen. In my house, when I was a kid, we came home from school, we sat at the table. Five o'clock, my dad came home, we ate dinner at the table. One brother came home from work, we ate at the table again. Other brother came home from work, We ate at the, from football practice, we ate at the table again. Between four and 10, when I went to bed, there were, we were probably at the table five different times. And when my dad died and we split up all the stuff of the family, my brother cried because his wife went through and threw a bunch of stuff away and we had to dig through the trash to find it. (laughs) He wanted the buckeye that my dad always carried in his pocket. I wanted the kitchen table. The hardest thing to get rid of was the table. God, through Jesus, shows us the spirit of celebration whenever he went as he proclaimed a God of mercy and peace and joy. The joyous feast in Cana is still a sign to the church that we are to rejoice in the people of God and to toast the world with the amazing good news of grace. Professor David Steele calls this Cana grace. Grace. The knack for throwing parties that combine food, decorations, music and laughter to con- create not just for their own sakes but to create to create an atmosphere of welcome, well-being and love. An atmosphere where we can thank God for the gift of celebration in ministry. David Steele, this guy who has said this, he even coined a beatitude. Blessed is the pastor whose church has a real tenor or a plumber. We have both here. Johnny Leonard, leave him be. Excuse me, the incomparable Mr. Johnny Leonard. <laughs> Ted Owens, I know you're listening. Thank you for being our plumber. And if you ever want to teach the four-year-olds, we'll make room for you. But he also says, but doubly blessed is the pastor whose congregation knows Cana Grace. Our joy flows from knowing our God. There's a great theologian who said Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to veritable orgies of joy. Can you imagine if we put that out on the sign? Come here for our orgy of joy. (laughs) Because we have been, but this is why, because we've been liberated by the fear of life. And the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being Christian. The church needs to remember how the mother of Jesus swung into action to keep a party going in Cana and how her son determined that it was time after all for the water to be turned into wine. Also, a wedding feast could continue. What a way for Jesus to begin public ministry in John's, Gabe, John's Gospel. It's called Cana Grace. And it's worth a miracle because it manifests the glory of God, the very God who wants even now for the community of faith to be a celebration of people. Brothers and sisters in faith, eating barbecue on the back porch and laughing till the sun goes down. Christian women turning the church gymnasium into a festive tea party as they share gospel and good news and good food together. A new member's dinner at someone's home that ends with folks hugging one another, giving thanks to God for the welcome they have received at church. That's Cana Grace. Friends, give thanks for everyone in your church and in your life who has the knack for throwing a party. What a way to begin ministry.